If you'd stand with me, I'm going to read today's passage. And if you'd follow along, it's in Luke 23. Luke 23, and I'll begin in verse 26. We are nearing the end of the Gospel of Luke. Verse 26, and as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen if, when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Church, we finally come to the point where Jesus is crucified. We've seen all of these references to his coming death, and now we've come. Now, a third of the Gospels focus on this final week, Passion Week of his, of his death. So the Gospels really focus on that final week, the events leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection. And from the first of the Gospels... Uh, we're, we're headed that way. We're pointing that way. For example, in John's gospel, when John the Baptist, his messenger, first sees Jesus in John 1, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Preparing, setting the tone. Jesus is coming to die for our sin. So the gospels are moving toward this point, and we finally reached it. But it's not just the gospels. The entire Bible is pointing toward the cross, the theme of the Bible the apex of the Bible, when Jesus dies for our sins and rises again from the third day. For example, when the, the first sin occurs in Genesis 3, and Adam and Eve uh, try to cover their sin and their shame by they making this fig leaf thing, uh, God says that will not do, and he covers them with animal skins, assuming that animals were sacrificed, blood was shed. The first faint glimmer pointing to one day 
when the Lamb of God steps out of heaven and comes to the earth, and he dies as a sacrifice for our sin. The whole Bible is pointing to the cross, and here we come to it in today's gospel. Now, the passage begins with a man from North Africa, Cyrene, modern-day Libya, by the name of Simon. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Now, when it says the cross, it doesn't mean the, the, the vertical uh, piece of wood, but just the horizontal piece, the cross beam. Sometimes that was referred to as the cross. Jesus was so exhausted, so uh, you know, beaten to a pulp, uh, all the scourging, uh, the, 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 the spiritual agony that he'd gone through, uh, completely exhausted. He can no longer carry that cross beam, that's mild journey from Pilate's house to the place where he's going to be crucified. And so they draft this North African Jew who is there for Passover, put on him the cross. Now, Simon, who is Jewish, uh, apparently becomes a believer, maybe that day, because later in the New Testament, there are a couple of references to Simon being part of the family of God. And so maybe he is watching Jesus and listening to his words, and he, he uh, understands this is no mere man, and he puts his faith in Christ. So Simon is drafted. If you go to Israel today, you'll be taking it one place to a place in the old city, which is the most likely site of Pilate's praetorium or palace. And it would have been from that spot where we saw yesterday, he would have been sentenced to death, and they would have made their way about a mile journey. Today, it's through the old, narrow streets of the old city of Jerusalem. And it's about a mile. In fact, if you go there today, it'll be crowded with uh, shoppers, because there are shops all along the way, a little uh, bizarre thing. Uh, there are tourists there, especially in the summer. It's crowded. You'll have to make your way through the crowds, but you can follow along the steps that Jesus most likely would have taken. It's called the Via Della Rosa, the way of the cross. And you can see what was a likely place that Jesus would have been traveling with his cross that day. So Simon is now carrying the cross beam. And in 27, we read that there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. Just think in your mind, imagine this. The word has spread that the religious leaders have brought him to trial, that Pilate has, has declared him uh, to be crucified. And the crowds are coming. They had, they had loved Jesus. They had heard him. And, they, and there are many of them with him, mourning, lamenting. Uh, Jesus pauses and, and speaks to the women especially, don't weep for me. Uh, weep for yourselves and for your children. And he talks about if today is bad, it's going to get so much worse. And what he's referring to is the complete destruction, really the leveling of Jerusalem. In 70 AD, the Romans will completely destroy the city. And uh, the Jews will be scattered from that time in 70 AD, really until 1948, May 14th, when Israel declared themselves a state again. And he says... Uh, it's going to get so much worse, and that, in fact, happened less than 40 years later. Now, he comes to the first of two sayings from the cross. The four Gospels record seven statements that Jesus makes while he is being nailed to the cross. They are called, looped together, and called the seven words of Jesus. Three of them are found in Luke's Gospel. And they say so much about Jesus 
In fact, they're really uh, one of the, the, the great windows into the heart of who Jesus is, his perspective, his heart, his attitude, a window into the heart of God. And so in verse 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, you can go to a spot today in Jerusalem, kind of looks like a skull. Uh, in Greek, Golgotha, in, in uh, Latin, Calvary, that's where we get that famous term, Calvary. Uh, that's where they crucified him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Church, that is so understated. There they crucified him. There is an ocean of meaning. The whole universe was headed and pointing toward that moment when Jesus was nailed to a cross so he could die and pay for our sins. There is an ocean of suffering and pain. Uh, but the gospel writers draw no attention to the physical pain. All the attention is on the spiritual uh, meaning behind it. He, he bore our sins. He takes away the sins of the world. He died as our substitute in our place. But we know uh, the, the incredible pain of crucifixion and the suffocation uh, that, that goes with it. So they crucified him. Simple as that. And Jesus said, here's the first of the seven statements. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that is such a, a moving statement from someone who is in an agonizing uh, death. Uh, Lord, forgive them. They don't understand. Lord, have mercy on them. They don't know what they do. Who is he praying for here? Well, I take it both the Jews and the Romans. All those who were behind his, his crucifixion. Father, would you forgive them? Would you have mercy on them? Uh, they don't understand what they're doing. And the depth of his mercy and forgiveness and grace and love are staggering. Particularly when you, when you just think about uh, the situation he's in. Uh, you know, church, whenever you're sick or in pain or something like that, uh, you know how easy it is to kind of be focused on yourself and how difficult it is to be really concerned about other people because, you know, all the attention ought to be on you. You know, you're really hurting. Uh, I, I can't help but think about the first 16 years that Gail and I were married. Uh, I was competing as a distance runner, and once a week or so, I would run a 20-mile run or farther. And, and Gail was so kind, she would uh, so often go with me on these long runs. She would go either on a bike carrying our two daughters uh, on a little bike chariot behind, or she would sometimes go in a car and down, go down a lonely dirt road or a country road, and, and she would go with me. And uh, it was great help for me to have company and uh, taking my mind off of the, uh, of the long run. Uh, but I noticed that after about 15 or 16 miles, uh, I, I did okay until then, but after 15 or 16 miles, I began to get grumpy and, and a little bit irritable. And, and uh, that just goes when you kind of run out of fuel, run out of food, that, uh, you know, it's just natural that you get a little bit more irritable. Well, here is Jesus, and a much greater thing. He's nailed to a cross, and he's thinking about others. Father, would you forgive them, for they know not what they do. Church, if, 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 you, if you don't understand this about Jesus, about the heart of God for you, you don't understand him. He is full of forgiveness. He is the God of endless mercy and grace. 
On the cross, he paid for your sins, and he wiped the slate clean. Whenever you receive that gift, then that means all of your sins are wiped away, washed away as far as the east is from the west, and now you are in forgiveness and freedom. No condemnation. And God would have us live that way. He doesn't want us to waste the death of Christ and still be guilty over sins that he paid for. There is a prophetic writer that some of us have enjoyed by the name of Graham Cook. And Graham Cook writes about uh, the Father's heart of forgiveness. He writes it in the form of a prayer, or kind of a reverse prayer from the Father. My beloved one, how can you be depressed by your own sinfulness when the wonders and joys of my mercy are freely available? Dear one, why be nailed by the enemy when the keys of my unfettered grace can open every prison in your life? Why be subject to the relentless condemnation of the evil one when the love of the one who is almighty is yours to delight in? Do you not know that the enemy is defeated? Do you not appreciate that you are endlessly forgiven? I am going to peel away this part of your life and expose the grace that is freely available. I am not obsessed by sin. I have dealt with it by judging Christ. Become as gracious as your God. Do not nail other people, but be endlessly forgiving. They who are forgiven much also love much. Enjoy forgiveness. Revel in it. I am not disillusioned with you, for I never had any illusions about you. I have always understood who you are and the struggles you face. Why would I not love you since I am love itself? Live as one not condemned but released. Then take the key of my grace and unlock the prison door of as many captives as you can find. Forgiveness grows when it is employed. Church, this is the heart of Jesus. This is the point of the cross. This is the message of the Bible. Live in the grace and the freedom that Jesus won for you on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what you do. Some of you have never received that forgiveness perhaps in the first place. And right now you can just breathe a prayer. Jesus, I need that forgiveness right now. I take it. I receive it. Others of you, you have made that decision, but yet you've sort of gone back to living in condemnation and guilt as if Jesus didn't already pay for your sins. Don't do that. Revel in it. God is not obsessed with your sin, but the grace that's poured out in Christ. Okay, he goes on. Or actually, there's just a little bit of a sequel here. Um, People are begin shouting uh, to him, you know, if you're really the Christ... You'd come down. You'd save yourself. God would rescue you. Uh, the soldiers say the same thing. You know, if, if you're really the Christ, you know, save yourself. They're making a wrong assumption, a fatal assumption. That is, that if he was from God, if he was really the Messiah, that the Father would rescue him. They don't understand the whole purpose and heart of God was that Jesus would come to die on a cross for our sin. Sometimes we make the same mistake. We have some big burden in our life, and we're praying about it and praying about it, and we think, man, why doesn't God hear me? There must be some sin in my life. There must be something wrong in my life. And we're assuming that if we were, you know, kind of right with God, if God was hearing us, that God would answer our prayers when we wanted them, how we wanted them. We misunderstand at times what God is doing in our lives. We can't make the same misunderstanding that the religious leaders and the Roman soldiers made here. So they're shouting with him. And then we come to the second statement, which is also going to be an incredible example of mercy and grace. It's in 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Same thing. Same attitude. But the other rebuked him. 
saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Now, what is interesting is if you read the other Gospels, you see that he starts off also railing against Jesus. But something happens so that over a period of time, maybe over an hour or so, he comes to understand that Jesus is no mere man. He's watching his face. He's seeing his love. He's hearing his voice. And he concludes, that's no mere man. That must be the Son of God. And he puts his faith in Jesus. As simple as that. And so he gets on to his other criminal friend. Do you not fear God? Now notice what this thief says. He's going to say about five or six things about the reality of who God is and who He is. Some have said, I think wisely, that the best theologian present was that thief hanging on the cross, hanging beside Jesus. He knew far more about God than any of the disciples understood. Notice what he says. Do you not fear God? In other words, we ought to fear God because we're His creatures. He made us. We belong to Him. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. He's admitting his sinfulness, that it is only just that they uh, receive the judgment that they're receiving. So he's admitting that before a holy God, his own sin. And this is just. And then he goes on in 41 and says, but this man, pointing to Jesus, has done nothing wrong. So he not only gets his own sin, but he gets that Jesus is blameless, sinless. He doesn't deserve this. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, isn't that something? Jesus is, di- is dying on a cross, I mean, naked. I mean, he's, he's about at death's door. And this thief understands this is not the end for this man. That, in fact, he is the king. Uh, when you come in your kingdom, you're the king. There's resurrection here. Jesus, when you come in your kingdom, remember me. He has faith in the resurrection of Christ. He has faith that Jesus is king. He has faith that Jesus cares enough to answer a prayer like, remember me. He understands that it's not by him earning heaven, but it's by the mercy of God. Would you just have mercy on me? Would you remember me? He was the best theologian present. And God answered his prayer. Jesus looks at him and immediately says, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Think about it. The authority, the confidence. He's about dying, but he is reigning from the cross. You will be with me today in paradise. Yes, I say. I answer that prayer, yes. Today, I will rescue you. Isn't it interesting? Uh, kind of the, 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 the main guy who understood was a, was a condemned criminal. Um, who cries out for mercy. That is the grace of God. And it's just like God. Jesus says, you're going to be with me in paradise. That is a reference to the Garden of Eden as our paradise, the original paradise that we lost with Adam and Eve. One writer says, not only does Christ's work on the cross enable him as king to open the doors of paradise to the thief, but it reverses the horror of what took place in the Garden of Eden. He says that when Christ wished to bring the thief into paradise, he immediately spoke the word and brought him in. Christ did not need to pray to do this. God put there the flaming sword to guard paradise, but by his authority, Christ opened paradise and brought in the thief. Entrance into paradise is available not only to the thief, but to all who put their trust in Christ. Christ gave to all those who believe 
access to the entrance that Adam had previously closed by sinning. Who else could remove the flaming turning sword which was placed to guard the tree of life? Indeed, who else but Christ? And you think about this uh, condemned criminal who goes immediately to be with heaven. Um, this week I had an interesting um, uh, experience with someone in a prison in Navasota. A couple of months ago, I told you about a visit to the prison in Navasota that uh, about five folks at Woods Edge go to at least weekly. Vonnie Taylor, Bob McComas, uh, Charles Culpepper, Lana Bowen, Deb Martin, and maybe there are others that are involved, uh, but at least those five go weekly. Vonnie goes twice a week. And, and they have such a, a great ministry there. A couple of months ago, I went with Tim Martin, and we uh, spent some time there, and it was so precious. Uh, it, it just meant more to me than I would have guessed because those men in the prison understand the grace of God. And there's no pride here, no self-righteousness, but deep gratitude for mercy and grace that go out to the likes of them. And they were, were humble, grateful, broken, loving men. And it made me think, all of those at Wood's Edge who are involved with jail and prison ministry, I can see why you love it. Well, I met uh, about 100 men there, but one of them this week writes me a letter. And uh, uh, this is what he said, at least part of the letter. He said, uh, this man has been in prison for eight years for murder. Uh, that was his sentence. He said, dear Jeff, four years ago, I was blessed to be part of the first group of men in the faith-based dorm. At that time, we had very few volunteers. A group of us prayed for two and a half years, and God heard his son's cry. He has answered those prayers in a mighty way with Wood's Edge. Since the volunteers that are coming speak from the heart, and it is amazing to see godly men and women walk in their calling. Wood's Edge has shown love to men that for many have never received love. Now they feel part of a huge family, Wood's Edge West. He says, what a joy it is to witness men receive their freedom and their identity in Christ from our loving Father. Men are learning how to read and meditate on the Word. Some days you can see five or six discipleship groups going on all around the dorm. Guys, we're praying for revival in Houston. This is part of it. Back to the letter. He says, in the recent past, you would ask a man in our dorm, who are you? And the response would be, this, be his name. Now you ask, who are you? And he'll respond, I am a child of the King. He says, you hear his true identity. He says, we are grateful for all the amazing volunteers and a church family that prays for us. The prayers are being answered in a mighty way. We serve a God with no limitations or boundaries. Hope to see you again soon. And he signs it, warrior in Christ, David. Incredible letter. I uh, read this letter, didn't remember him, met a, met a lot of guys here, and so I... Uh, Ask Glenna, my assistant, to contact uh, Bonnie Taylor, who leads this ministry. Bonnie, have I met this man? Who is this guy? And, and she tells me who it is. I bet, Bob, you know who it is. And um, she said, you won't know the name, but you'll immediately remember the case. And, and she's right, I did. It was a very high-profile front-page chronicle about eight years ago in Houston. And she says, he is my friend, and I want to I learn to become like him. And apparently... He, he comes to Christ in the prison, and he's walking with Jesus, discipling others, loving the Lord. And one day, uh, when he gets out, he wants to come and worship with us and to give testimony of what God is doing 
at Woods Edge West. But wasn't it interesting that so often that God uses the, the brokenness of life, like prison, like hanging from a cross with this, this thief, to, to, to bring us to the realities of life. I hope it doesn't take that for you, to be humbled from your pride and to cry out for the mercy and the grace of God. Lord, all my hope is in a Savior. Remember me, Jesus. Remember me. Max Licato, the, the well-known writer and pastor in San Antonio, talks about this thief on the cross and about the love Jesus shows him. And he says, I smile because I know I don't deserve a love like that. None of us do. When you get right down to it, any contribution that any of us makes is pretty puny. All of us, even the purest of us, deserve heaven about as much as that crook did. All of us are signing on Jesus' credit card, not ours. And it also makes me smile to think that there is a grinning ex-con walking the golden streets who knows more about grace than a thousand theologians. No one else would have given him a prayer. But in the end, that is all he had. And in the end, that is all it took. No wonder they call him the Savior. Church, um, some of you this morning, perhaps, perhaps you were thinking, man, it's not right, it's not fair. This thief on the cross, on the dying bed, you know, gets to go to heaven like that. And maybe some of you are saying, well, this ex-convict, or this convict, this man who writes Jeff, he gets to go to heaven? Friends, if, if that does not warm your heart, you have no idea about what Jesus is all about. You're thinking that life and heaven and Jesus is all about religion. You're thinking it's all about being good boys and good girls and earning your way to heaven. Oh, no, it's not about religion because none of us would ever qualify. We all fall far short of the glory of God. But... But we got a God in heaven who's all about grace and mercy to sinners like you and me. And not only to, to the thieves on the cross and the guys in the prison, but, but regular folks out in life and society, we too can cry out to God, Lord Jesus, remember me. Remember me. And he will answer that prayer. Some of you need to breathe that prayer this morning. Others of you have breathed that prayer before, but you're living in guilt and condemnation as if Jesus never died on a cross. In your pride, you're relying on your own goodness and religion. Oh, repent of that. Turn to the mercy of Jesus and revel in it and enjoy it. Stand with me. Stand with me. Friend, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, do what the thief on the cross did. Breathe a prayer. Jesus, remember me. Remember me. He'll say yes. Friend, if you're living in guilt and condemnation, turn from that religious pride and unbelief and glory in the grace of God. Glory in it. Lord, thank you for a Savior. Lord, I pray for this Christmas season that we would not be about tinsel and busyness and scurrying, but we'd be a better Savior. I pray, Lord God, that we would fall more in love with Jesus because of his great love for us. Lord, this is our prayer together in Christ's name. Amen.